0: Today's scripture comes from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just not seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world, of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound to God.
1: Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome, NCF and guests. We're so honored to have you join us on this Easter Morning, and it is really my privilege to lead us in our time of worship and in the delivery of God's Word. We especially want to welcome those of you who might be visiting us for the first time at the invitation of a friend, a guest, family member, coworker. Uh we hope and pray that today's service, as especially as it's considering the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, that you'll come away not only informed, but maybe even inspired to where you would consider Jesus for who he claims to be, namely God in the flesh who has come to save his people, to save humanity. And so without further ado, I would ask for you to bow your heads with me as we ask for the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, this is your day. It is the day of your son. It is the day of the spirit where we come together by the summoning of your voice to worship you and to hear yet again the glorious story, the wonderful truth, the historical phenomena of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in spite of all the things that we have against us, in spite of all the trials and tribulations and the struggles that we are dealing with, we have hope as those who have peace. A hope that goes beyond any man-made hope. We have the hope of the resurrection. Father, I pray that you would bless us now as we sit at your feet And as we ask for your Son, Spirit, to work in our hearts so that we would be changed and moved by the words that we hear. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it so that we would leave this place transformed and refreshed and renewed to be people of God. Lord, we also pray for our visitors, our guests who are visiting us for the first time. Oh, God, would you speak to them? And we ask, oh, Lord, that whatever they are searching for, they would find the truth in you. Oh, God, hear us now, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Christians are to be more pitied than anyone else in the world. Christians are to be more pitied than anyone else in the world those are the words that i came across as i was preparing for today's message and no they don't come out of the mouth of some atheistic philosophy professor in one of the universities like the one that we're in today nor does it come out of some ironic cynical british author across the pond no these words come out of the mouth of the apostle paul the apostle paul The Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest missionary and theologian the church has ever produced, that Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul who wrote over half of the New Testament, is that the Apostle Paul who said those words, Pastor John? Indeed it is. In fact, those very words come out of one of the letters that he wrote that now make up our New Testament Bible. In fact, let me read to you the source of where those words come out of. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're starting in the 17th verse we read. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is you. Useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in the world. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of all great harvest of all who have died. Ah, oh, you're thinking, oh, pastor, you little trickster. You try to fool us into thinking that that was an atheist. Look, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to be a trickster. I'm simply trying to make the point that as far as the Bible is concerned, that if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, as the Bible claims that he did, then our faith is futile. Christianity is false. And therefore, we Christians are to be more pitied than anyone else. You see, for Paul... It doesn't matter if you believe that Jesus actually existed. It doesn't matter if you actually believe that he was crucified by the Romans. If you do not believe, even though you believe those two things, that he did not rise again three days later, then the Apostle Paul and really the whole New Testament would say, you are not a genuine follower of Christ. You are not a genuine Christian. That's how important the resurrection is. Why? Because as we'll see in a moment, the resurrection of christ serves as the foundation of why christians today center their lives and devote their lives upon this very person who we believe actually rose again from the dead now if you're here today investigating christianity i know how outlandish that sounds after all this idea that someone died three days later come back from the dead you know, to, in all honesty, in our culture, if we witness someone coming back from the dead after being dead for three days, our immediate reaction, I would imagine, would not be to run towards them, but to run as far away as possible out of fear they're going to eat your brain or something. Am I right? Right? The idea that Jesus Christ could actually rise again from the dead is outlandish. And yet, as I hope to show and what I hope and I pray for, Is that as you hear and understand how the Bible understands the resurrection of Christ, instead of running away from him out of fear he's going to eat your brain, you'll run towards him in love because he's captured your heart. And so let's do that today as we take a look at this miraculous story that's accounted for us in the gospel of John. A miraculous story that surrounds a man by the name of Lazarus and his two sisters. And because this is a lot of material, this is a lot of text that we read. Good job, Monica, by the way. Great reading. Let's try and kind of focus in on what this text is trying to teach us from the big picture standpoint by framing our discussion in this idea of the power of love. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today as it pertains to the power of the resurrection of Jesus as it relates to this idea of the power of love. Number one, our love creates power. Our love creates power. Number two, death makes our love powerless. And finally, number three, Jesus' love makes death powerless. Our love creates power. Death makes our love powerless. And Jesus' love makes death powerless. Okay, let's jump right in. First point, our love creates power. Let's take a look at our passage zeroing in on the first three verses, starting in verse one, we read as follows. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Pause right there, your attention, please. Our passage begins with the introduction of a man by the name of lazarus now that name may sound quite unfamiliar to you but in the ears of jesus that name would have been very familiar by the fact that he was very intimate with the one who bore that name and how do i know this for two reasons first off in verses one and two we come to find out that this man lazarus happened to be the brother of the sister duo mary and martha the same mary and martha we read about in the gospels who were devote early followers of christ and just by the way that family dynamics work where you're into what your family members are into the likelihood is is that by sheer association lazarus was also a devoted disciple of jesus as well and of course this is confirmed when we consider the second reason why we know lazarus and jesus were tight by the fact that he is referred to a certain way to jesus how is he referred to jesus what is he called lazarus no he's referred to as the one you love jesus That's weird, (laughs) quite interesting and odd. Why in the world would Lazarus be referred to Jesus, not simply as Lazarus, but the one you love? Well, verse one and two tells us, it turns out Lazarus was sick. He was very, very sick. So sick that his sisters were so terrified to the point where they felt the need to notify Jesus immediately so that he would quickly come and heal their beloved brother. Now, By doing this, they are revealing, these two sisters, that they have a certain understanding of love, that which we'll see in a moment, we all share. And what is this understanding? It's this, love creates power. Love creates power. There is power in love. Now, I know when I say that, I sound kind of cheesy, kind of sappy, kind of like a Celine Dion song, right? Doesn't she have a song called The Power of Love? The Power of Love, right? But all kidding aside, you know, That there is truth in this idea. When you love, whether it's a person, a place, or a thing, you find yourself motivated. You find yourself empowered. You find yourself energized. Do we not see this all the time in our life experiences? Of course we do. Why do companies dangle out very lucrative year-end bonuses to their employees? It's because they know their employees love money. And so they're trying to use their employees' love of money to motivate and inspire them to finish off the end of the year... With hard work. Why do lazy, smelly teenage boys, all of a sudden, once they start dating that girl, shower every day, put on nice, freshly pressed clothes, right? Because their love is inspiring them to get off their butt and to start being clean oh yes indeed there is power in love to where it enables a person to do something that was practically impossible before that love existed i mean if that company takes away that year-end bonus the hard work dissipates if that girl dumps that poor boy he starts smelling again am i right in order for power to exist there must be love for without love there is no power there is no power, but yet here's what's so amazing about this power of love. Life chose a, shows us that this love that has power is so potent, it's so dynamic, <clears throat> it's so energetic that it can actually overcome the greatest fear that we all have. By the way, do you know what that is? What is the greatest fear that we all have, whether we realize it or not? What I would like to suggest that is actually the fear of death. Every single person that walks on this earth, which means every single one of you in this room, you are all terrified of death. That is your greatest fear. Now, I know some of you in here are like, Pastor, no, that's not true. Uh, Sure, I mean, I am afraid of dying one day, but I wouldn't say it's my greatest fear. Because by definition, for something to be my greatest fear it's something I have to constantly think about, worried about. And I got to be honest, I'm more afraid of other things right now rather than my death. I'm more worried about failing, or I'm more worried about not making it in life, or I'm more worried about ever getting married. I'm not really worried about death, to which I would respond, you're wrong. How dare you say I'm wrong, right? I would respond with your disagreement with my own. Why? Well, consider these words from his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. This is what social anthropologist Ernest Becker says. Listen to what he writes, quote, mankind's common instinct for reality has always held the world to be essentially for heroism. We like to be reminded that our central calling, our main task on this planet is to be heroic. We must stand out, be a hero, make the biggest possible contribution to world life, show that we count more than anything or anyone else. But here's the rub, or there's the rub. For many thinkers immediately saw what real heroism is about. Heroism is first and foremost, a reflex of the terror of death what is dr becker saying he's saying that all of our attempts in life to be significant to be accepted to be superior to be successful all of those are our instinctual reaction to the subconscious fear of death that we all have now if what he is saying is true That means the underlying fears that drive us to do these things, the fear of insignificance, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of mediocrity, all of that are simply symptoms of a deeper fear, namely the fear of death. Which means if any of you in here struggle with any of these fears that I just mentioned, fear of insignificance, mediocrity, failure, rejection, and so forth, whether you are aware of it or not, what you're really afraid of is death. And how can you not, living in a city like this where you're constantly under the pressure to succeed, to be magnificent, to stand out. This city breeds not simply the fear of failure, not only the fear of insignificance, not only the fear of rejection, but the underlying fear behind all of those things, which is the fear of death. And yet, as I just said a moment ago, this love that has power is actually able to overcome this fear of death. And, of course, we see this in everyday life. I know I have recently. I have a family member right now who is sadly informed that she has stage 3 liver cancer. And the doctors are telling her, look, if you don't get a transplant within the next couple of months, I'm sorry to say you're not going to make it till the end of, you know, this year unless you get a liver transplant. When the news first broke out, especially to her side of the family, her older sister immediately said, I'm going to give her half of my liver. That's what she said. She was being dead serious, which apparently you could do, right? She says, let's schedule the meeting. Let's go to the operating room, slice it out, take it, without even thinking. What is that? That is the power of love. Here is a woman who is risking knocking on death's door herself by going under the knife. Why? So that a person she loves, right, could be further away from death than she is right now. That is what love does. Love is somehow, some way, have the power of overcoming the fear of death. This woman is fearless when it comes to her love for her baby sister. She's going to do all that she can to make sure that her little sister keeps on living. That is the fearless power of love. It can overcome the greatest fear that we have, the greatest instinct we have, which is avoiding death at all costs. And, of course, we see an example of this fearless power of love in our passage where, starting in verses 7 to 8, we read Jesus' response as he hears the news of Lazarus' sickness. Let's, let's read it again. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But, Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Bible culture and Bible lingo, just substitute that word stone for shoot, as in like shooting a gun, okay? (laughs) Turns out, Jesus was not liked by a lot of people during his day, right? In fact, some people actually wanted to murder him, wanted to kill him, right? You know how they kill people back then? We use bullets. They use stones. They would throw stones at people. They call it stoning. They wanted to stone Jesus. And one area, one town where they almost did was Judea. Okay, And that was the town he could could not avoid. He had to go through if he was going to go see Lazarus, which means what? In order for him to go see Lazarus, he would have to face possibly his own death. He was endangering his life. And the disciples knew this. And they also knew that if they stuck with him, if they continued to follow him, they were risking their own lives. They could possibly die as well, which is why Thomas, his disciple, says what he does in verse 16. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die. With him. Jesus' own action confirms the same understanding of love that both Martha and Mary have, and really we all have. And that is love is powerful enough to overcome the fear of death. This is why Martha refers to Lazarus, her brother, to Jesus as the one you love. Because without her actually saying, hey, can you come and risk your life to help my brother? She's trying to remind of Jesus' love, Jesus' affection for her brother as an inspiring, motivating, energizing thing to face possible death so that he could be saved. Listen to how one commentator by the name of F.F. F. Bruce, how he puts it, quote, there is no request that Jesus should come to them in verse three. Doubtless, the sisters were well aware of the dangers that would That would best Jesus if he were to visit them. And so they refrain from asking him directly to imperil himself. Nevertheless, their words are in effect a plea for help. Did Martha know what she was doing when she asked Jesus for help? Oh, yes, she did. She knew that Jesus would be risking his life, facing possible death for him to come and visit her brother. Which is why she says, can you remember your love for my brother Can that be enough to inspire you, to motivate you to face the possibility of death and be fearless and come and visit us? Now, today is Easter, and the whole point of this day is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So you're probably wondering what does all this talk about the power of love and the fearlessness of love to overcome the fear of death? What does that have to do with the resurrection of Christ? Well, let me begin to answer that question by going to my next point: Death makes our love powerless. For the sake of time, let me quickly summarize our story so we can fast forward and then pick it back up where we need to. So Jesus finally responds to the call for help, and he starts proceeding to go towards Bethany where Lazarus is. But here's the thing. The text tells us that he does not go until he knows that he's already dead, that Lazarus is already dead. And of course, the question becomes, how in the world can Jesus know that Lazarus is dead when he hasn't even reached Lazarus? And here, the apostle John, who's the writer of this gospel, is starting to hint at, as he does throughout the gospel that jesus is actually who he claims to be he is god in the flesh he is god incarnate how else could he supernaturally be aware how else could he be supernaturally informed that his dear friend has died and so with that theological punch in the gut Jesus then proceeds to go and he finally arrives to Bethany, the hometown of his dear friend Lazarus. And we pick it back up on our text, starting in verse 20. We read, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Jesus arrives on the scene to Lazarus' home, and he is met by a very distraught Martha. And understandably so, for her dear brother has finally succumbed to death. But here's the thing. It's not until you are aware of the circumstances of how she had to deal with Lazarus' death that you don't realize that she suffered traumatic suffering. Oh, yes, excuse me, Martha suffered traumatic suffering when you consider how she had to deal with Lazarus' death. What do I mean by that? Can you explain? Well, I'm going to try, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be a very long-winded explanation, so please bear with me, try to stay awake, okay? And I want to begin by asking you yet again to read verse 21 where we read Martha's response to Jesus' arrival. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, on the surface... It almost sounds like she is angry at Jesus, right? You can almost imagine like Martha in tears with snot and screaming like she's in a K-drama. Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would have died. Right? I don't watch K-drama, but I hear that's what it's like. right? And that's how we imagine that Martha is so distraught with emotion, she's so furious, almost criticizing, rebuking, and shaming Jesus for his tardiness to the point where he arrives when he's dead. But here's the thing. That's not how she's speaking. She is not angry. She's not rebuking. She's not criticizing. She's not angry at Jesus. And she's not insulting him, at least not intentionally. How do I know this? Because of what she says in her very next breath that's recorded for us in verse 22. Listen to what he says. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, here's the thing. When most people read this statement in verse 22, they misinterpret it often. Because when most people read this, they think that Martha is... Making a statement of faith. Almost as if she's hoping in just a moment, Jesus is going to do what he ends up doing. As if she's kind of cryptically hinting, Lord, I believe in just a moment you're going to raise my brother back to life. I, I, I'm anticipating it, right? That's kind of what it sounds like in verse 22. But there are two reasons why that is not what she is saying. Reason number one is her response to Jesus when he says to her, you're going to see your brother again. Listen to what she says in verse 24. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, what she's basically saying here is this, God, Jesus, I know I'm going to see my brother when the end of the world happens and we're all together again as a family in heaven. Here's the question. Why would she place her hope in seeing Lazarus again till the end of the world when the whole world is gone and everyone that she loves is in heaven when she re- if she really believes that Jesus is going to raise her brother in the next five minutes? Why would she have such hope like that? The second reason why we know she wasn't hoping or anticipating Jesus was going to raise Lazarus right then and there is because of her objection to his command, Jesus' command to move the gravestone, right? That's recorded for us in verse 39. Listen to what she says there. Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been dead for four days. Bible scholar D.A. Carson in his commentary says this. That Martha takes charge and issues a practical objection to Jesus' request that the stone be removed is entirely in character. Her objection confirms she did not understand from her earlier conversation that Jesus was going to raise her brother immediately. In other words, if Mary really did believe, really was hoping, was even anticipating that Jesus was about to raise her brother right then and there, she wouldn't have objected. But the fact that she does in verse 39 clearly indicates That what she says in verse 22 is nothing to do with her hoping that Jesus is going to raise her brother right then and there. So here's the question. What exactly is she saying in verse 22? What exactly does she mean when she says, Lord, even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Well, I kind of already told you the answer. Because going back to verse 21, again, on the surface, it sounds like Martha is being harsh to Jesus, right? If only you'd been here, he wouldn't have been dead. Almost as if she's indirectly insulting and criticizing Jesus. And she knows that's how it could be taken as. And so she quickly says, but Lord, I know even now God will do whatever you ask. Basically, she's saying, look, even though this happened and you didn't get here in time, I'm still going to follow you. As far as I'm concerned, you're still a person of great spiritual stature because after all, your God still hears whatever you ask for. And so because of that stature, I'm still going to be your disciple. I'm still going to follow you. You see, verse 22 is simply her reaffirmation of saying, you know what, this is terrible, this is a tragedy, but this will not diminish my commitment of being your disciple. That's all it's saying in verse 22. Now. With that cleared out of the way, right, with that no longer distracting us, we can now finally go back and answer the question of how this incident with Lazarus was so traumatic to her. And so, again, we have to go back. I know this is tedious. We're almost done. Verse 21, yet again, listen to what she said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Embedded in this statement is the awareness that Lazarus took a long time to die. He didn't die right away. It was a slow and agonizing death. It took time for him to die, and it wasn't a time well spent. She was literally just wondering, what's going to happen first? Is Jesus going to come in time to help my brother, or am I going to have to see my brother end his suffering with a brutal death? These days, I imagine, for her, must have felt like an eternity. And that is essentially what she went through. That was the trauma. I don't know if any of you in here has ever had to suffer the great tragedy of watching someone you love suffer for a long time and eventually die. But if you have, you know, arguably, that's probably the worst kind of suffering a human being can go through, right? To watch someone you love with all your heart where you're willing to do anything, risk your own life, even give your own life... For your loved one, and yet you are utterly helpless as you watch your loved one slowly withering away in pain and misery and only to end with their death. I would imagine that sitting and watching helplessly is worse than going through the suffering yourself, which is why in many cases we would wish, I wish I was the one suffering and not this person that I love, right? That was what Martha was going through. That was the suffering, that was the trauma she was enduring. And friends, I'm sorry to say this, but if you have not yet experienced that trauma, that kind of suffering, you will. You will. It's going to happen eventually at some point in your life. And when you go through that experience and you go through it long enough, you will reluctantly accept that your love cannot overcome the death of your loved ones. You see, your love for your loved ones can overcome the fear of death. But it cannot overcome death itself. See, that's what Martha understood. When she realized that her love for her brother maybe could overcome her own fear of death, it could not overcome the power of death. That's the strange thing about love. It can enable us to be fearless when it comes to death. But when it comes to us going toe-to-toe with death and the death of our loved ones, we are utterly powerless. Listen again to her statement in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see it? Do you see how in her mind, Jesus' love is only relevant before Lazarus' death, not after it. Right? It's almost as if she's saying, well, now that my brother is dead, thank you for being here. But your love for my brother, which brought you here, it's basically irrelevant. It's impotent. Why? Martha came to this conclusion that Jesus is trying to challenge, to challenge all of us. You see, when we come to the conclusion that our love, our love for our loved ones is powerless in overcoming death, we conclude that no one's love is capable of overcoming death, right? That no one is able to love so deeply, so powerfully that it could actually overcome death itself. That's what Mary, excuse me, Martha concluded about her love, and it's also what she concluded about Jesus' love. That's why she says what well, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As if to tacitly say, but now that he is dead, your love for him is useless. But listen to Jesus' response as he reflects and as he responds to her claim about his love for Lazarus. Listen to what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is angry here. Turns out, even though Martha didn't intend to insult Jesus, he was insulted. He was angry. Why? Well, to explain, let me go to my final point. Jesus' love makes death powerless. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, no doubt one of the most hard-to-believe claims about Christianity is that Jesus himself is God. God. And if you think about it it, it, it makes total sense. I mean, this idea that God, who is the creator of all, who made you, who made me, who made the cosmos, you know, decided to come into the world as an obscure ancient man, as a cosmic plan to save the world. In some ways, it just invites skepticism. It just invites us just to laugh at how utterly absurd that it sounds. And yet it's my hope that with what I'm about to say as I close my message will not only challenge that thought, but will also cause your heart to wish that it was true. So let me attempt to do that now by having us read again verse 25 in the first half of verse 26. Jesus said to her, "I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die." Jesus here is making the claim that if anyone believes in him, they will never die. Specifically, he's making the claim, "If you believe something about me is true, you will never taste death. And your loved ones who also believe in this, they will never taste death. And of course, that begs the question, what exactly about Jesus do we have to believe is true? What exactly do we have to believe about Christ that's true to where we can overcome death itself? Well, Jesus tells us down in verses 41 and 42, listen to what he says. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus tells us that what we must believe in him to be true so that we can overcome death. We must believe that God the Father sent him, God the Son, into the world. That's what we must believe to be true in order to overcome death now of course that further begs the question why did god the father send god the son and here we go to a very famous passage of bible that is so famous that you even see it lifted up in football stadiums all across the country john three sixteen. it starts like this for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life this is jesus talking to a man by the name of nicodemus Okay? And notice how he describes the love of God. He doesn't say God loved the world. He says God so loved the world. That little so. right, It's so important. And it's such a tragedy that in our English translation we lose what Jesus meant in the original language. Okay? But basically what he is saying is that God's love is unlike any other love. It's categorically different to where it's able to do what no other love is capable of doing. God's love is actually able to overcome what we are so powerless in overcoming. It actually has the power in overcoming death. Now, of course, the natural response to that claim is, how in the world is God's love different from our love? But for you to even ask such a question reveals that you have a false assumption about your own love, your own power of love. You see, it is true that our love is powerful enough in overcoming the fear of death, right? That is the proper function of genuine love. But just because something is functioning properly doesn't mean it's normal, doesn't mean it's healthy. You know, a person could have a malignant tumor inside of them, killing them, and yet their body looks like it's functioning properly when in fact it's not functioning properly at all. And the same can be true when it comes to our love for people. Our love can be functioning properly by being willing to risk our own life for the person we love, but that doesn't mean our love for that person is normal or healthy. And one of the ways that you can discern, one of the ways that you can figure out that your love for someone is either abnormal or unhealthy is your attitude towards God When your loved one is suffering, dying, and maybe even dead. One of the ways that you can tell whether or not your love for somebody is abnormal, unhealthy, is how you react towards God, your attitude towards God, when that loved one of yours is suffering, dying, or even dead. If your response is bitterness, anger, hatred to the point where you might even doubt his existence or doubt his goodness, That is an indication that your love for your loved one who has suffered and maybe even died, that is an indication that you have an abnormal, unhealthy attachment of love to that person. Because what that bitterness and anger reveals is that you are saying that my love for this person takes greater precedence, greater priority than your love for that person, God. How dare you do what you did to my loved one? How dare you allow this to happen when I would not allow such a thing to happen in their life? Who do you think you are? Right? Right? And so with such righteous indignation to where you stand on a higher platform of judgment against God, you are claiming through your bitterness, through your anger, my love is of greater importance, greater significance than your love for them. See, when a person loves someone to the point of overcoming their fear of death, that could be a sign that they have a proper view of their power for loving them, or it could be a sign They have an overinflated view of their own power of love. Let me explain. Let's say this kid one day decides to face the neighborhood bully, right? And he's just so confident in his own powers. He's so confident, man, I could take this chump down, right? Now, there's a chance he has a proper view of his own power or he has an overinflated view of his own power. You can't tell until you look at the outcome, right? He's either beat the bully or the bully has beat him. So many of us on the surface look like we have a healthy view of love that we have towards the people in our lives, right? But it could be off. And sometimes you won't know until the outcome, the outcome of suffering, the outcome of death of our loved ones. And then the revelation comes forth. If you're bitter and if you're angry and you're spiteful at God, right, you are essentially saying that my love for my loved one has more entitlements has greater authority, more rights, right, more, more validity than your love, right? That's what you are saying, right? And by doing that, you know what you're doing? You're actually minimizing God's love, right? You're diminishing Jesus' love for that person. I mean, that's essentially what Martha was doing. She took the love of Jesus, the power of his love, and brought it down to her level, Right? Jesus, my love is not enough to overcome Lazarus' death, and your love is not capable of overcoming Lazarus' death. That's why you should have gotten here before he died. Again, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. What's Jesus saying? He's saying to her, and he's saying to all of us, don't Dare reduce the power of my love to your level. Yes, your love is powerful enough to overcome the fear of death, but my love does that and more. That's what Jesus is saying. My love is so powerful that it can do what you only wish and hope that your love could do for your loved ones. My love can actually overturn death. My love is more powerful than death. That is what Jesus is saying. His love for us, is all powerful by the way that is what the easter message is when jesus rose again three days later after being crucified on the cross he wasn't just showing off how powerful he is in and of himself that act of resurrecting was his way of saying my love for you is that powerful my love my power in my love is that strong it can overcome death it can overcome my death it can overcome your death it can overcome the death of all of your loved ones it can overcome death period now you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, how exactly does this work? I hear what you're saying, but what's the mechanism here? How does, how does this dynamically work out? Well, okay, let me end my message by going there. And to do that, we turn to the Apostle Paul because really there's no one else besides the Apostle Paul who better and brilliantly and clearly shows us how Christ's love overcomes the power of death. And so let's turn to Romans chapter 5, where starting in verse 6, he writes the following when we were utterly helpless christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good but god showed his great love for us by sending christ to die for us while we were still sinners and since we have been made right in god's sight by the blood of christ he will certainly save us from god's condemnation For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. What is he saying? He's simply saying that in order for Jesus' resurrection to say what it does, namely that his love is so powerful it can overcome death, Jesus has to be God. That's what he's saying. Jesus must be God. Why? well by definition God is the creator of all right but not only that as God he's also the judge of all we know this instinctively as a culture I mean why do celebrities say man you can't judge me only who only God can judge me or why do victims when they confront their victimizers in court they'll say things like you can get away now but one day you're gonna have to face God one day See, even at a cultural level, we know instinctively that part of what makes God God is that he is the judge of all. He is the rightful judge of all, right? And scripture says that he is going to judge all for what? For sins. And you know what the punishment of sin is? Death. There it is. The origin of death. The reason why death exists. The reason why you're going to die, why I'm going to die, why everyone is going to die. Because we are all sinners, right? Right? Now, you can say, man, that just sounds cruel. That sounds vicious for God to sentence death. But you got to remember, he's God. You're not. He is the one who determines what the just penalty of sin is, especially when you consider the other thing. He's the ultimate victim of sin. Did you know that? The person who's ultimately wronged, the person who's ultimately wounded, the person who's ultimately grieved by our sin is the one to whom we direct our sin to. It's God. Even when we sin against somebody else, we're ultimately sinning against God, right? We're sinning against him. He is the judge. He is the one who determines the judgment. But here's the thing. Because he's the judge, that means he's the only one who has the authority to forgive. He's the only one who has the right to forgive. The only person who is allowed to forgive is the person who was wronged, right? We can't... If someone wrongs you, right... You're not going to allow your best friend to tell the person who wronged you, oh, don't worry, my friend forgives you. You're like, who do you think you are? You have no right to do that, right? The person who was wronged is the only one who carries the authority to forgive. And guess what? That is what God did. When he became a man, Jesus Christ, and suffered on the cross for our sins, he was our savior substitute. He suffered the full penalty of all of our sins, past, present, and future Why did he do this? Verse 8 of Romans 5. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God's love compelled him to send his son Jesus to be your savior. And here's the thing. Jesus willingly did this. Jesus voluntarily did this because he shares the same love that the father has for you. This is why he says what he does in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me, I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I will take it back up again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father commanded. Jesus came and died for us because he wanted to and because he wanted to honor his father. That's what he's saying. And here's the thing. When Jesus rose again after being crucified, you know what that means? It means that all the sins that warranted your death, all the penalty that you had to pay by virtue of him rising from the dead is his way of saying, paid in full. You don't owe anything to me. I no longer hold anything against you. And now the very thing that warrants your death Your sins have been fully paid for, fully covered. And so you're no longer my enemy. You are my friend. Do you now understand how Jesus' love is able to do what our love cannot? Because the reason why death exists is because we've sinned against God. But it's that very God who bestows us his forgiving love. This is why Jesus must be God. This is why Jesus is the savior of the world. Not some arbiter, not some servant, but God Himself has to be the servant. He has to be the Savior. Here's the question Will you believe it? If you're here today and you're investigating Christianity, no doubt you're probably here because someone you love brought you here and they're a Christian. Right? And I want to ask you to consider why they brought you here. Could it be, and you can ask them afterwards, Could it be that the reason why they brought you here is because they wanted to show you a love that their love for you cannot achieve on your behalf? Could it be that they loved you enough to want to introduce you to a love that far exceeds their own for you? I hope and pray that if you are someone who is considering the claims of Jesus, you will consider it in the lens of this idea of his powerful love, evidenced by his rising again from the dead, as evidence that if you claim that love behind the resurrection, you could spare your loved one from grieving like Martha, from grieving like Mary, and as a family, as as, as a group of friends, you guys can rejoice together for all eternity, knowing that the greatest fear, the greatest threat against you and your family is a threat you no longer have to face. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come together and consider the significance of the resurrection, that we would truly be humbled by what it means. Father, we know that you are a God who loves us in spite of the fact that we are sinners. Lord, help us to see this love, that we would come away knowing that the resurrection is the hope that we have in overcoming the greatest fear and the greatest threat against us. Father, a threat that even our love is so powerless against, but your love has conquered and will conquer. Oh God, I pray that you would give us the faith to claim it and that we would be inspired to share it with those in our lives so that we would no longer have to face the sorrow of Mary and Martha in our own lives. Oh God, would you do that now for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.